right. Hi, everyone. Originally, this episode was going to be scripted. I was kept waiting about 40 minutes in the dentist office waiting room the other day. And, uh, and I'd kept myself occupied by writing a fairly lengthy script. But I kind of wanted to keep it real. So, so I'm just going to throw that script out the window and kind of speak from the heart. And I kind of wish I could steal the intro music from Sam Harris's podcast. It has this really emotional sound, and it's, and I often joke to myself, I'm like, this must be the music you hear when you die. Uh, like this. Ha! Sam won't mind, I hope. Um, so I usually don't talk about personal stuff on the show, well, except for my rhinoplasty, my adult circumcision, uh, my history of depression, my dissatisfaction with my job. Well, actually, I do talk about myself a lot on the show, so I guess in a way this will be nothing new. If you follow the show on Facebook, you may have read a couple of slightly ominous or teasing posts that may have indicated that maybe things weren't 100% with me recently. And if there's one thing I can't stand, it's social media drama queens. Um, people who air their dirty laundry for attention and blow things out of proportion. So uh, I'm definitely not trying to do that. So I figured I'd just talk about this in an episode and just be as honest and candid as possible about it. So recently I started weaning off of antidepressants, and it's definitely a lot harder than I thought it would be, even though I've heard it can be tough. And just to give you a quick backstory, a kind of synopsis about my kind of journey with depression. So I was always kind of a sensitive kid, kind of naturally introspective or a deep thinker. Uh, over-analytical, and it's not like I was always depressed as a kid. There's plenty of pictures lying around, more than I would have thought, of uh, me as a little blonde boy with a huge smile plastered across my face, usually holding an animal or something like that. But, but from a young age, I did tend to get into these kind of periods where I just felt kind of off, like things weren't quite right mood-wise, Maybe in, you know, looking back in retrospect, now I'd probably use the word dysphoric. Even though I always had friends, there were definitely times where I experienced a lot of what was probably social anxiety, but I just tried to joke and fight my way through it. And being a deep thinker probably didn't help. From an early age, I had this penchant for finding myself in these existential bouts where I'd think to deeply about things, you know, the meaning of life, whether there or not there's a God. And I, I could end up in these kind of really kind of deep melancholic episodes, I guess, or, you know, these these angsty bouts uh, of overthinking or whatever, existential crises or whatever you want to uh, call them. And then probably around my mid to late teens, I started getting into singing in bands, writing lyrics and stuff. And, uh, I think my first song lyrics, my early song lyrics, that is, tended to 
be inspired by themes and stories from world mythology, a lot of uh, Celtic and Norse mythology and things like that. Then as I probably got to really my late teens and into my early 20s, I started to express more of um, my angst and anger. I I let more of my dark side come through in in my song lyrics and uh, in the music. The The lyrics became more personal. And in a way, I think that's a plus. I think if you do suffer from depression, or even if it's not clinical depression, if you just find yourself in, in a tough place in life where you have a lot of angst, there's a lot of stuff you're, you're dealing with, uh, you're going through stuff emotionally, it definitely helps to be a, be a creative person. It really helps to have an outlet. I think it... Um, figuratively speaking, it can be cathartic. It can almost be like a kind of alchemy. You know, you, you transmute that pain into something worthwhile, into uh, into art, uh, not to sound pretentious or whatever. But also, when I was in my early 20s, I found myself in a couple of bad car accidents. I, I probably talked about this on the show before. I had this one friend. Uh, we were really close. He was like a gearhead. He got me my first job out of high school just you know this kind of crappy retail job but I still have some good memories regarding my time there and he and I went to get lunch one day um we were working together and we were in the center of town and he blew through an intersection that spanned behind one chain of stores to behind another chain of stores and so he didn't stop he just blew through And another car turned in from the main road and basically T-boned us. We were in my friend's, uh, I forget exactly what kind of car it was. It was this really kind of sporty, almost Camaro-looking car, black and white. Um, I think it might have been some kind of formula or something like that, or it might have said formula on it, I forget. Um, Not that that's necessarily uh, crucial to the story. But the other car pretty much kind of T-boned us. It, it hit the passenger side quarter panel with a good deal of force. And my head went, I think, off the side window and then off the front windshield. And at the time, I was so pumped full of adrenaline that I declined medical attention I didn't necessarily think anything was wrong, which is fairly common in the wake of a car accident. Uh, People are so overexcited, so pumped with adrenaline that it kind of temporarily masks uh, the the pain or symptoms of injuries. And then um, I think I was with some friends at a mall shortly afterwards, and I'm like, wow, I, I just don't feel right. And I felt kind of off for a week or two. And I finally went to see my doctor at the time. And I think he kind of chided me for not coming in sooner. But at the time, he couldn't find any symptoms of concussion or anything. And then not too long after that, I started working with uh, my family, where I'm still kind of stuck now doing uh, construction, letting that design degree go to waste. And I was on the highway on a rainy day. It was bumper-to-bumper traffic. And there was a young guy in a big white work van. And so, like I said, the the roads were really slick. It was heavy rain. And uh, traffic was practically stalled. This guy just plowed, plowed into into the line of traffic that I happened to be in. 
I was drive. I forget the make of the car. I was driving like a little red sedan at the time, actually a Dodge Shadow, I think it was. But anyway, and the thing was crumpled like an accordion. My car went off the side of the highway down into a ditch and was stopped by a tree. Um, Airbag deployed right in my face. The next morning, I literally needed to lift my head off my pillow by, you you know, manually lift my head off the pillow using my uh, hands and arms because my neck felt so uh, weak or whatever. And so after that, I started developing chronic headaches. I'm talking like practically 24-7. I know the brain supposedly doesn't feel pain, but it almost felt like someone was twisting your brain tissue with a wrench inducing this nausea and at the same time there was brutal pain like in the right in my right temple and my right eye and it just made life miserable and so i had like cat scans and x-rays taken they um they put me on all sorts of pain meds muscle relaxers nothing worked until one neurologist tried an antidepressant a serotonin drug and that was the first thing to actually take the pain away. And he diagnosed me with with what he thought were probably a combination of tension and migraine headaches. And so at this time, I was probably like 24 and 23 or 24, maybe. And I said, well, if I'm going to be popping, you know, these these pills to deal with my headaches and, and they are antidepressants. I just had a kind of, uh, and this is a strange thing for an atheist to say, but a come to Jesus moment where I was like, figuratively, of course, where I was like, well, if I'm going to be popping antidepressants, maybe I should deal with some of that baggage I've been carrying around for years, too. And I decided to start doing talk therapy. So ever since then, I've been on different antidepressants and, um, and in and out of talk therapy. And when I started this podcast, I've been doing doing it for three years. And when I started, I was in like my mid to late 30s range. So you, you can make a guess about how old I am. Um, if I wasn't so self-conscious, I'd just, you know, be more honest about my age. Or, But that's a whole different can of worms. But uh, I, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. So I'm in, I'm in that late 30s, early 40s range. And so since my early 20s to now. That's how long I've been on antidepressants. And the two antidepressants that worked the best for me, one was Effexor. And I was taking it because my sister happened to be on it. And I probably shouldn't be dragging her into this. But my sister, she's also into music. She's a really happy, good-natured person. But for a while when she was younger, she was suffering these panic attacks where she had real physical symptoms. Uh, she tried to go into a public place on her own or whatever. And it's weird because she was always such a highly social person, but she all of a sudden she had this issue with panic attacks and, and she started taking effects or for that. So I started taking it for my depression. Um, you know, I told the, the doctor or the therapist that my sister was on it and she prescribed it for me. And that was a pretty efficacious drug or effective drug, but uh, you tended to build a tolerance fairly quickly to it. And uh, so you had to keep upping the dose. And I tried some other antidepressants and it's not fun. Like like the, the side effects of antidepressants vary quite a bit and which side effects you, you end up with 
depend on your personal chemistry or physiology. Uh, just because one person gets a certain set of side effects with a drug doesn't mean the next person will. Some antidepressants made you feel like you were in a fog, made you feel doped out. Some left you feeling pretty natural, but maybe you'd have sexual side effects or something like that. And eventually, probably like four or five years ago, someone prescribed Prozac for me. And I remember I was kind of hesitant about taking Prozac because even though it doesn't make sense because it's just another antidepressant, it's a, what they call an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhib inhibitor. Uh, because one of the theories about how depression works, and they're still somewhat in, in the dark, the, the so-called professionals, and I don't mean that disparagingly, but they say there's a chemical component, but no one's quite sure how much of it is nature, how much of it is nurture. And it's also kind of a chicken in the egg type of situation. Does depression throw your brain chemistry off or does it, or does a chemical imbalance cause depression? You know what I mean? But supposedly one of the symptoms of low serotonin levels could be things like chronic pain and depression. So it could be. And, and you know, the fact that serotonin drugs did work for my headaches where nothing else would. It could be that I did have some kind of serotonin deficiency, whether that was caused by depression or it was something innate, uh, uh, something genetic. I, I, I don't whether it was the result of head trauma from the car accident uh, or car accidents, plural. I have no idea. But anyway, I was afraid of taking Prozac because I felt like growing up when people talked about antidepressants, when people talked about quote-unquote crazy pills, Prozac was the name you heard bandied about a lot in popular culture and in the media. So it seemed to carry a stigma more than other antidepressants. Uh, the generic name is fluoxetine. But I started taking Prozac, and I think maybe for like two weeks, I felt like I was in a fog Um and then it leveled off, and I felt extremely natural, uh, extremely even-keeled, emotionally speaking. My energy level was good. My clarity of thought was good. The decreased libido and things like that were maybe minimal compared to other um, antidepressants. So I've been on that drug for like four or five years. And um, the way the system is set up at the clinic where I go to you know, this nearby place uh, that accepts the uh, insurance I get through work. For some reason, they changed their policy. Instead of just having one physician who's both a therapist and can prescribe meds, they kind of split the division of labor between someone who prescribes the meds and then a talk therapist. So recently I saw the woman who, you know, checks in once in a while. Like, she, like I have to go and see her maybe somewhere in between two or four times a year in order to have her continue prescribing the medication. And I told her, you know, I'm like, I'm in a great place, you know, for a long time. Um, yeah, I still have my ups and downs like anyone does, but my mood's been fairly good. You know, my thinking and reasoning is crystal clear as far as I'm aware. Um, and I don't even know if I need antidepressants anymore, but I'm kind of afraid to get off of them because I've been on them so long and I've heard about withdrawal symptoms and I was afraid what if I backslide into some horrible black hole of headaches and depression 
And to be honest with you guys, one of the concerns also was the podcast. I really enjoy doing this podcast, and I really enjoy interacting with you guys. And I didn't want to backslide into depression or, or chronic pain and have that get in the way of doing the podcast. Um, so that was another concern. But both her and my therapist kind of agreed that the only way you'll know if you really need to be on antidepressants anymore is to try to get off them and see what happens, you know? So about two weeks ago, my dose got cut down from 20 to 10 milligrams a day of uh, fluoxetine or Prozac. And I felt fine up until maybe, I don't know, like a little less than a week ago or something. I was at work and all of a sudden I noticed I felt like these butterflies in my chest and in my stomach that wouldn't go away. Almost like you would feel if you were poised at the top of a hill on a roller coaster or something like that, you know? But it wasn't associated with fear. It was just kind of like this physiological symptom that I was aware of. And I also felt kind of detached from myself, almost like I was experiencing myself through like a fog or a veil or something. And yet it was still me, you know, even though I felt weirded it out when I talked, my words still made sense. I could still perform, you know, basic math at work. Um, I had to drill cabinet faces and position the pole, the door poles and things like that just perfectly. So it involved precise math. And even though I was going through this, uh, or even though I found myself in this kind of zombified state, I was still able to do all that stuff without error. Um, so I felt like that at work for a couple of days. And then, um, a good friend of mine, she invited me to a kind of pre-Christmas party at her place in Cambridge. And I'm going to be talking about friends during this, but I'm not going to mention their names, and I'm not going to go into much detail, just out of respect for them. But I do have to just mention what certain people did, you know, in, in order to tell the story. And I can remember the night before, I did some last-minute Christmas shopping. I wanted to get, like, wine to bring to the party, uh, both for, for the... Uh, my kind of secret Santa exchange partner, <laughs> and uh, also for my friend hosting the party. So I was, remember wandering around this big liquor store and wondering if people could tell I was messed up. And, you know, even though I felt like I was in this zombified fog, I, I was still able to carry on a conversation and, and joke with, you know, the person behind the counter and all that. And so... I went to my friend's party that night, and I think I already say it was in Cambridge. And, and Cambridge is a city here in Massachusetts, a fairly big city that's relatively close to Boston. And so after, you know, the mundane problem of navigating through the city or whatever, I finally made it to my friend's party. And uh, I tried my best to settle in, feel normal, engage in polite conversation and, and stuff like that. I had bought myself, the first time I ever tried it, it was like a six-pack of this stuff called Not Your Dad's Root Beer. Alcoholic root beer, each bottle has about the um, alcohol content uh, of, a, um, of a beer. So I had about one and a half of those. And then, okay, now if you're a family member, if you're a relative and you're listening to this, please make sure this story does not get back to my parents or immediate family. <laughs> uh, even though I'm a grown-ass man, there's some things you don't want to talk about 
with your family or, you know, that you might want to conveniently leave out of a story because you don't want to make yourself look bad or you don't want to get lectured. But this point in the story, so we're all sitting around the living room, a bunch of different friends from different walks of life, people that work at universities, people that have blue collar jobs, you know, and someone breaks out a bong. And uh, I'm not a big smoker. To be honest, I'll do it once in a while just to be social, not to make myself feel social. I don't need pot for that. At this point in my life, I'm pretty good, despite the fact that I had social anxiety in the past. I'm pretty good at making conversation with people, even strangers. Uh, I like to think so. So not to make myself feel more uninhibited or something like that. But I'll smoke just to be a part of the festivities or whatever, you know? Like, um, because, you know, it it feels kind of odd. Sitting in a room full of high people is kind of like sitting in in a room full of drug people while you're sober. You know, you can just feel that your perspectives aren't really lining up or that you're out of sync or in different zones or whatever. So when the bong or the joint comes around, once in a while, I'll take a hit or two. And to be honest, I don't even really care for marijuana. I'm a naturally laid-back guy, so I don't really need a drug that makes me feel more <laughs> mellow. You know what I mean? Or, or And I'm also someone that likes to think, and, and I don't like how sometimes pot can, well, just to put it plainly, it can make you feel stupid. But I'll do it sometimes just to be a, a part of what's going on. And so I did a bong hit. And I think I was also thinking somewhere in my brain that maybe this would help with the the kind of butterflies in my chest and the kind of weird, just kind of nervous and off feeling that I was experiencing because of the um, the antidepressant withdrawals. And uh, it's, it's too bad a more common sense part of me didn't say, yeah, well, now you're adding another substance to the mix and this could make things worse, you know? So I take a big bong hit and my throat is just on fire. And at the moment, I'm not concerned with any psychological effects or anything like that. All I know is that my throat was on fire and all ripped up. It kind of reminded me of when you have bad acid reflux and you know, and you get that raw burning feeling in your throat and you'll do anything to get rid of it. So I ran out to the kitchen and I already know something's wrong. You know, I'm looking f- for a drink of water and instead of getting like a glass from the cupboard, I'm like splashing water up to my face and gulping it. And one of my female friends is like, what are you doing? Do you want a glass or whatever? And and I'm trying to explain how, you know, my throat's all burning or whatever. And she gets me like a glass and some water. And then I'm by myself in the kitchen and I start to feel kind of paranoid. You know, where you're feeling like, oh, I hope no one sees me. They're going to know I'm messed up. You know what I mean? And even though he probably shouldn't feel that way or worry about it. And so I'm trying to eat like crackers and stuff that happen to be laid out for the guests. And I notice that like my mouth and my my kind of like chewing and, and swallowing muscles aren't really working. And it just feels like my mouth is as dry as the Sahara. And 
the more I chew these crackers, all I'm doing is generating like dry powder inside my mouth and I can barely swallow. I don't know what's wrong with, um, you know, the muscles in my throat or whatever. They're just not working. And so now I'm like, okay, something weird is going on here. So I decide to go to the bathroom and uh, I'm splashing cold water on my face and I start to feel so kind of detached or depersonalized that I'm like, if I look in the mirror, is someone going to be there? I'm, I'm like, this is where my head was at. And I look in the mirror and I'm staring back and I have like cold sweats. It's horrible. And, uh, and, and let me just, you know, explain something. So as I've probably hinted at in the show before, I've talked a lot on the show about how I admire Sam Harris for being a quote unquote spiritual atheist. And all I mean by that is that He's into things like altering consciousness, um, using psychedelic drugs and, and uh, meditation, things like that. I, I've always admired that about Sam Harris and, and how he's proof that just because you're an atheist doesn't mean you can't be into things that are conventionally thought of as being spiritual. And that those things might actually have a neurochemical explanation, not a spiritual explanation, you know, things like, um, you know, the effects of meditation or prayer or chanting, uh, the effects of, uh, well, of course we know, um, ingesting psychedelic drugs, you know, intense drug trips, of course we know those are chemical, but they also, they have that feeling of being spiritual experiences as well. But anyway, um, yeah, so I've talked about Sam Harris a lot on the show in that regard. I've talked about my admiration of Aldous Huxley, and I've kind of hinted at how I'm familiar with different methods for um, expanding or transforming consciousness. So, I mean, I have done, when I was younger, you know, and I'd usually try to put some intellectual spin on it, like, you know, this is all about some kind of Huxleyan quest to alter consciousness or open the doors of perception. But I've done lysergic acid, I've done mushrooms, I've done opium, I have even distilled um, the juice from morning glory seeds and, and drank that. Uh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of stuff, okay? And uh, I really hope that family members aren't listening to this. And I've had good trips and bad trips. I've had uh, a lot of roller coaster trips where starts off with mild euphoria then the bad trip starts to slowly kick in till you find yourself in some kind of nightmare state. Then I somehow claw my way out of the nightmare state into some beautiful kind of enlightened state. So I have to say what I'm about to describe was worse than any bad trip I've ever had. I had this feeling like I'm trying... I researched this online afterwards to see if anyone else ever experienced this stuff. And there's a lot of other horror stories about pot online. And I don't know if it has something to do with stronger strains of pot that are out there now, um, like med medicinal grade pot and stuff like that. But a lot of stories about people experiencing severe depersonalization, uh, kind of massive distortions in the perception of time. One person described feeling like they were experiencing deja vu piled on top of deja vu. And I kind of felt like that. I'm in the bathroom, like my body's shaking, almost like vibrating. And I feel like 
I'm almost experiencing this fractured or dismembered kind of consciousness. It's hard to string two thoughts together. The idea that I used to be somewhere else and am now in the bathroom seemed like impossible. Like Everything before that moment seemed like a dream. I felt like huge chunks of time were missing. And I felt like I was stuck in this moment. Couldn't recall how I got into it. Felt like the moment kept replaying itself and I couldn't think right. And I couldn't figure out how to get to the next moment. It took like a Herculean effort to get to the next moment. And I remember thinking, I need fresh air, man. I, I need fresh air. So I like, like thinking that I'm invisible or something, you know, I try my best to sneak into the room where the party's going on and get my leather jacket that's on the back of the chair, which has my phone, my keys and everything in it. And I knew I shouldn't be driving in that state and I was blocked in anyway. But I thought maybe if I could just sit in my car, you know, and be by myself, I can just like close my eyes and maybe, maybe eventually this hell will be over, you know. And uh, so next thing I know, like missing time, I barely remember being able to get out the front door. All of a sudden, I'm down in the alleyway next to this girl's house, my friend, and I'm puking into a bucket. Or, or a garbage barrel, rather. Then I'm face down. Well, it's the side of my face pressed to the asphalt, just trying to get any comfort I can, trying to cool myself down with the asphalt. And this is at night. Um, things were kind of damp out. And I think at one time I did make it to my vehicle, and a female friend came out and helped me back into the house. And then at the point I was in the alley, another free, uh, female friend found me, and it's like all of a sudden, once in a while, I would come back to consciousness with someone calling my name and like trying to wake me up. And uh, then all of a sudden, I'm on the back porch and I'm hanging over the, the stair rail of the back porch, vomiting my brains out again. Then I'm in that horrible place again where I'm experiencing like I'm stuck in this moment and can't th really depersonalize, can't think of any way. I'll ever get out of this moment and really thinking to myself, this night is only going to end two ways. It's like, I'm never going to be home again. I am either going to die or I'm going to end up in a psych ward. I really thought I broke my brain. Like I thought that I had chemically done something to my brain that caused this permanent brain glitch. And I was going to be trapped in this dysfunctional loop forever. So I'm like, I'm either going to end up in a psych ward or I'm going to end up dead. And I had the, you know, when you're in a real crisis moment, like I started thinking about my family, I started feeling really humbled, like thinking about maybe how at times I've been over cocky. I even started thinking about the religion thing, like, oh, Mr. Atheist, always being the wise guy, think, thinking he knows better. Uh, than the religious people and this and that. And then having like thoughts like, what if there is a God and I, you know, betrayed him by being an atheist and all this stuff. And of course, when I'm in that confused state, I'm not thinking about logical considerations like the role of culture and all this. Like, I'm not thinking about how, why am I thinking that I pissed off grumpy old Yahweh? Why aren't I thinking about any of the other myriad gods? I go straight to the the religion I happen to be born and indoctrinated into. You know, I'm not 
thinking about all that stuff. It's a, You guys have probably all had similar experiences. Maybe if you're just severely drunk and you're puking your brains out and you get that moment where you feel so awful, you're like... I mean, and at this moment, I still didn't believe, but you're like bargaining with a being you don't even necessarily believe in. You're like, if you do exist, if he, she, or it, some higher power is out there, I'll do anything if you just make this go away. And I remember even thinking, and you guys will laugh at this, I'm like talking to this whatever, this being that I'm hoping just might, just might be out there. And I'm like, and once again, cultural relativity you know i go right to the religion i was indoctrinated into i start saying if you get me out of this if you restore my mind i'll even do a christian podcast i shit you not and uh it'll be funny if my old friend mark is listening to this he, he's a christian that i met through doing this show uh, a listener of the show and he had a, a christian podcast and we used to uh have these friendly, very civil arguments about religion. And uh, I'm just imagining the kind of smile, <laughs> the kick he might get out of that, that I was kind of pleading with God and offering to do a Christian podcast if he'd just help me out. And uh, all of a sudden, I have another moment where someone's shaking me and talking to me, Phil, Phil, wake up, you know? And this girl guides me, you know, says, do you want to lie down? And I'm like, uh... Is there a place to lie down? You know, I'm like puking. I'm just out of my mind. And she's like, there's only two beds and they're taken. And I'm like, basically communicate somehow that I don't care. I I will, you know, I'll I'll lie down anywhere. So she leads me into the living room. And I just curl up like a dog under the, not the living room, I'm sorry, the dining room. And I curl up like a dog under the dining room table, like an animal looking for a place to die. And and I, I'm puking, I'm lying on my side, puking, shaking. Um, once Every once in a while, someone will like kind of coax me back to consciousness momentarily. I'd have, you know, a friend telling me, hey, you know, I love you, man. You all right? Do you need us to call an ambulance? I think I said yes, but no one ever did. But it's probably good they didn't. <laughs> or I'd have like a female friend like, you know, rubbing my back or or brushing my hair back or something, you know, trying to make me feel better. Um, then some more close friends showed up as the night went on. And I, I was knocked out, out, except for those moments of brief consciousness for like three or more hours. So people would get to the party and I can only imagine they must've been like, who the hell is that curled up under the dining room table? And then, you know, they'd be told it's Phil and then I'd have them trying to check on me and I'd momentarily come out of it. And, uh, eventually I started to really come back around and I remember being able to tune in to the sounds around me. I could hear that the party was still going on. And also I realized that my mind is intact, more or less, once again. Once again, And I'm able to push myself, you know, off the floor, clamber back up to my feet. And uh, I walk out into the party. And, and one comical thing I should mention is that my friend, a lot of friends of mine, mostly like um, friends who happen to be girls, like to throw theme parties. And this Christmas party had this like onesie theme. So a lot of people are dressed in like those animal onesies. I'm wearing like, you know, like an old timey like union suit, like a lumberjack type of thing, but it's like green and plaid. And it has 
bear, like two bears or something on, on the ass of it that, you know, the flap that comes down and, uh, and I was wearing my leather jacket cause I realized that the thing didn't have pockets. So I'm in a green onesie or union suit with like a Donnie Brasco esque leather jacket over it. And so I'm awake and I, st- I walk out into the party and all of a sudden it's like everyone greets me enthusiastically like I just came back from the dead. And I just had this really great feeling. And I guess in a way, if anything good came out of it, it kind of reminded me of having like a bad mushroom trip or something when you finally break through the nightmare and you come out to this very warm kind of loving place and it was kind of like that. All of a sudden, I was in this kind of sweet, humble, loving, type of thankful just to be alive place. And people are hugging me. A friend is washing my face off like I'm a kid with a cool cloth. And there were people there that I already considered friends. And some people I considered acquaintances who I now consider friends. I was really moved by just how nice people were. And how people checked on me and how they were concerned and how happy they were when I kind of figuratively rose from the dead again. And so as I'm kind of piecing my brain back together, I have, you know, I'm an agnostic atheist. You know, I'm highly doubtful of a higher power and an afterlife. But I still love quote unquote spiritual things. I'm fascinated by religion, by mythology, by symbolism. So kind of trying to patch my head back together. I've been listening to a lot of Marie Sue, that kind of native folk artist I like that I sometimes talk about on the Facebook page. And I've been thinking a lot about Joseph Campbell and these these myths about dying and rising gods, not saying I'm a god, but I've ever since I was a kid, I like the symbolism of the dying and rising god. There's just something very moving and powerful about it. And, uh, and my guess is that my chemistry, my brain chemistry was already in a re- really fragile place because I was withdrawing off of those meds. And the pot was probably also really strong and I'm not a regular smoker. So my already fragile brain chemistry just got fractured. And speaking of like Joseph Campbell or symbol, you know, religious symbolism in retrospect, it, it almost remind me of certain themes from shamanism uh, or that you find in different shamanic cultures somewhere uh, in my abode. I have an illustrated book on shamanism, shaman, shaman, tomato, tomato, maybe I remember getting an argument one time over the proper pronunciation but I remember Ray Manzarek from The Doors used to say shaman, so that was good enough for me. And um, there's a picture in it that I always loved of these different kind of bipedal animals, like a crow, a wolf, different animals. And they're basically dismembering and putting back together the shaman. And often, you know, because often shamanic rituals or initiations involve potent hallucinogenic drugs. And the shaman, I guess it's probably something like a bad trip, will get a feeling of, you know, like depersonalization, of being not themselves, of being dismembered. You know, maybe their psyche is dismembered. And then somehow they get pieced back together. And once they do, you know, they're a stronger, more powerful being. They're a shaman, you know. And, um... And, of course, there's that element of oneness, of egolessness that, you know, that we find in Eastern religions like Buddhism, which, depending if you're ready 
for it or not. It can either be beautiful or nightmarish during a trip, you know. But so I've been thinking about that a lot too. The uh, the kind of uh, whole dismembered shaman thing, which is also kind of a a dying and rising thing, and uh, it reminds me of. I wrote a song back in those angsty, tortured artist days. Uh, I might play it on the show. Maybe I'll play it on the show at the end of this episode. But it was called, uh, originally it was called God Reversed. And I think I might have got, uh, is it Yeats? Uh, I think there was a poet that was part of an occult society. Uh, You know, maybe a contemporary of Aleister Crawley, who... um, you know, they all had these secret names. It might have been Latin, I forget, but his his name was something meant something like Satan is God reversed or something like that. But it was a famous poet. And so I named the song God Reversed and ended up getting shortened down to just reversed. And the first lines were partially inspired by that shamanic dismemberment theme, except with my own dark, tortured artist spin on it. And I think the the lyrics went like I do not truly live. I do not truly die. What the hell is this thing? Suspended zombie life. Unholy, insane, sewn up black voodoo king. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, my lyrics were pretty damn dark. But but yeah, that's what went down. So if you saw a post on Facebook, on the Facebook page, that kind of alluded to the fact that I'm feeling better now, which infers that I must not have been feeling too good recently or feeling too well. That's what that's all about. And, um, but that was absolutely the worst experience of my life. I'm going to say worse than knock on wood. And there's a superstitious thing for an atheist to say worse than losing a loved one, worse than losing a beloved pet, uh, worse than any of the past trips I've had. And the reason why I say that is because at least if you have your right mind, and you lose a loved one, as much as it tears the heart out of your chest, at least you still have your mind and your sanity so you can grieve properly or whatever. This was like my psyche was fractured. You know what I mean? Um, It was insane. And as I think I said to a friend upon waking, I said, and if you don't have your mind, you don't have shit. You know what I mean? Um... And it's funny, it definitely humbled me in a number of ways because I had entertained the possibility of maybe experimenting with hallucinogens again sometime down the road. I'm also a big fan of Joe Rogan, and he's big into things like sensory deprivation, DMT, things like that. And I thought it'd be cool to try to like expand or alter consciousness by some using some of these methods. And uh, so I had even entertain the idea of maybe somewhere down the road doing like DMT, doing uh, mushrooms again or something, maybe like some kind of drug that's incorporated to native rituals like ayahuasca or peyote or something. But I don't think that will be going on anytime soon or possibly ever. Um, yeah, but that's basically my story. And um I hope I still got it. I hope my brain's still together enough to do the podcast. And I shouldn't sound melodramatic like that because I am doing the podcast. The show is continuing. I just mean I'm hoping I still have what it takes to keep the show up to snuff and do it correctly as I go. I just did that Krampus episode, <laughs> you know, still feeling messed up. And I think that came out all right. 
So I don't know. Let me know what you guys think. It was a pretty wild ride. Um, but don't worry. The Week in Doubt is not a Christian podcast. Uh, I still doubt the existence of a higher power, but if you are out there, he, she, or it, no hard feelings, and hopefully you respect me for instead of just drinking the Kool-Aid and it blindly adhering to dogma out of fear, I hope you respect the fact that I appreciate life and the mystery of life enough that I want to know what the real answers are, and I want to use the reason that if, if you are real, that you instilled in me to find that truth. So I hope if you do exist, you appreciate that I choose reason over dogma, and I actually care that much enough about the mystery of existence that I want the real answers. But all right, so peace out, homies. And you can tell I'm still not 100% because I don't think I would usually say peace out, homies. But until next week, this has been The Week in Doubt. And maybe I'll leave you with uh, Reversed. I am the death machine